Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if people really listened to each other? Me too. In a noisy world, how do we focus on listening to the things that matter? Do you feel heard? And are you able to make others feel heard? Join me and guests from around the world as we tackle these important questions and become better listeners along the way. I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and this is Listening on Purpose. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Listening on Purpose podcast. Today, we have a fascinating conversation with Lee Mars and Justin Zorn, who are the co-authors of a brand new book called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. The book is really great, and like I hope this podcast does, it leaves you with actionable insights that have the power to make your life better. All right, Lee, Justin, welcome to the show. So glad you're here today. I've been really looking forward to this interview. It's not really an interview. It's a conversation for me. So I'm really happy to be here with the both of you. You are co-authors of a not only beautiful, but what I believe is an essential book that was released a few weeks ago called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And the first thing I want to do is just thank you for the book. This morning, I sat down to go through my notes and prepare for this conversation. And I was able to really pause for a moment and find some inner silence and quiet that me voice that you talk about in the book. Thank you for that. It's a real gift. Thank you. Well, and anecdotally, I'm thinking of changing the name of the podcast to Silence on Purpose, if you guys are good with that. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Um, you know and one of the other things that I was able to experience in that silence was that while I I made a lot of notes when reading the book and and researching both of you that I was also entirely unsure of where this conversation should go or will go and instead of finding anxiety in that I was really able to think of quieting everything down so that we can just let an organic conversation emerge Mm-hmm. and um, let Im- the important things come out and really leave the listener with the possibility of transformation at the end of this conversation. I'm going to mm-hmm. jump right in. <laughs> Sounds great. Your argument is bold that we can repair our world by reclaiming the presence of silence in our lives. This book is thoroughly researched and really beautifully crafted. What's the why behind the book? And in addition to why, why now? The premise of this book is really a question. What are we going to do about this crazy world? How are we possibly going to bring some more sanity? And I think this is a question, a set of questions on a lot of people's minds right now, Tim. And for us, the sense is that tuning into silence isn't going to be a panacea for solving all the problems we face in these times, but it's a prerequisite. It's a prerequisite that we turn down the noise, figure out how to navigate the noise and tune into silence so we could find some finer inspiration. Beautifully said. Lee? Yeah, I just add that I I got excited when you said bold and I think there's some, like Justin was saying, there's an aspect of this that's really about a starting point. And maybe there's some boldness in it being a simple starting point 
an accessible starting point, and even something that is innate to us as humans, that it doesn't need to be newfangled, super complex, and certainly esoteric, that really it could be something that boldly accessible, (laughs) simple, and available to us. It's really interesting to think about that from the perspective of perhaps we have everything we need already. And your, your book is, you know, provides a pathway to, to utilizing what's there for us to discover and then make our world better. I really liked that in the book early on, you both share really personal stories that really draw the reader in. I'll also say it was very interesting. So there are some books I read on Kindle just because it's of the ease when traveling and everything. But I love how your book is laid out on the page. Mm-hmm. I think it really is impactful. The, the formatting of it really also speaks beautifully. Lee, your personal story in the beginning of the book is regarding an experience following the birth of your daughter. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about this experience you had and then the really the perhaps moment of catharsis, we might call it, when your doctor asked you a very specific question. I'll start by saying that we start the book out with what's this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And of course, Justin and I needed to also answer that question for ourselves. And it's funny, I was just sitting with a group of people who were had just read the book and they were speaking of their experiences of being encountering that question. What's the deepest silence you've ever known and the many directions it took them in and having a little bit of a moment of, Oh, it can't be that, that that's not because it's, that's not auditorily quiet or that's not the right answer or whatever. So this story about my postpartum experience after the birth of my daughter is one of those that was not happy with being ignored, like it needed its time and space. And, and, and that helped us kind of discern, really get clear about how this isn't about necessarily auditorial quiet, that it, that it's about some kind of silence within, or at least it was for me. So in my postpartum experience got, I would say pretty adrenalized in that we were planning a home birth It ended up being an emergency transport it was very you know scary in that moment emergency C section but my response is to was to mobilize sort of like all my internal energies and and perhaps to kick in a bit of an adrenalized state that turned into me not sleeping that turned into me not even thinking i needed sleep turned that turned into me not even knowing i wasn't sleeping i mm. remember saying to someone how do you even know when you're awake or when you're asleep and i really meant it it got very wow. confusing <laughs> in there. So there were all these voices that were coming forward, this, this sister striving voice, this one that was going to beat motherhood, that mm-hmm. was going to still manage to you know, have a consulting firm that was thriving and be an awesome mom and clean the grout in my kitchen and write handwritten notes and, 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 you know, it was going to be amazing. And she was pretty convinced, I think, that, that she was actually beating it. You know, she was Mm -hmm. winning, (laughs) but then there were other voices of concern that felt like that I was going to maybe think my way out of this problem because there were issues of of anxiety and some paranoia creeping in. And so the sightless internal scientist in me was documenting all these moments of insight to sort of treating this madness as if it was an escape room. I just needed to think my way out of. 
So there was that voice. And then there was the, this trusty sidekick who was doing all that recording on cassette tape because that's the time it was happening. Anyway, there are so many right. voices, so many things taking place. And it was getting quite crowded in there when my doctor, who was helping me with those postpartum medications, said to me, Lee, have you ever lost your witness? When he asked that question, all those voices, and there were dozens really, parted like clouds to a blue sky moment of awareness, just exquisite awareness and the sense of being held by silence, the sense that the answer was so clear to me. And I said to him, yes, but only once. And I knew that that was right. I knew that was the accurate information. <laughs> so for me, it felt important to share that un perhaps unlikely story the one that wanted to come forth and the readers may find that there is some kind of atypical story that, that is that deepest silence. And we encourage them to, to look for the one that is true, that is wanting to come through because there's something in there. Silence is what we think silence is, what we experience it to be. And for me, it was, that was one of the deepest ones. Wow. It's an amazing story. I wonder if you could give a little more context to that question. Have you ever lost your witness? And why that might be a question that, that triggered this moment. That's funny. I didn't have a lot of context from him. The context I pulled from was probably some of the context I got from being a, a, a now today lapsed, but previously a fairly experienced meditator mm -hmm. where we talk about sort of bearing witness to, to things and not being in the activity, but bearing witness and having sort of an objective, a, a sense holding it a subject so that's what I took it to be. And I also pulled likely from my own experience in expanded states of awareness and intentional journey work using psychedelic and entheogenic substances mm -hmm. where we talk about bearing witness. So I was really pulling from what I thought he was speaking to, but he didn't offer a lot of psychological context. So we hope we, <laughs> we seem to be connecting in somewhere in there. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Justin, the personal experience you share also involves childbirth. I, what I love about this is it starts to introduce the idea of silence doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, Lee just kind of alluded to this, mean the absence, the complete absence of sound or activity. And so I'm wondering if you could share your experience with us and how you, as you say in the book, experienced one of your deepest silences while you were actually being bombarded with noise. Yeah, I would say this is one of my deepest silences because there are moments looking out over a balmy ocean, standing in pristine snow on a silent morning when I felt more traditional kinds of deep silence. But as we asked, as Lee mentioned this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known to business executives and politicians and neuroscientists and poets and activists and someone on death row we realized that this meaning of silence was so personal and so subjective. And often it could happen in these auditorily, seemingly loud spaces, but that it was possible to get into this space of pristine internal silence. So for me, this example that I give was when my wife and I, our newborn twins were born just before COVID hit where we live, May, March of 2020, our five-year-old daughter, now five-year-old at the time was three, 
was home about an hour away with her grandparents. And we were stuck in the newborn intensive care unit, even though the, the babies were thankfully doing really well. And there was so much noise, Tim. The oxygen monitors and the respiratory alarm rate monitors and these digital jingles that sounded like 1980s video games all over the place. And then there was just this fear and uncertainty, which to me was another level of the noise. Are we going to be able to get home in time before these lockdowns begin? The fear of not knowing what COVID would mean, the concern about different doctors telling us different things about caring for our, our newborn twins. And then there was this one moment when my wife stepped out for a brief moment of respite to take care of something. And the nurse asked me if I wanted to hold both babies at the same time for the first time. And I unbuttoned my shirt so I could hold them both skin to skin. And there was still all this noise, this buzzing and chatter all around, beeping. And I held the two babies, my daughter and my son, on my chest. And in about a minute's time, I felt our breaths start to synchronize. And I felt our heart rates almost synchronize. And all of that noise was still happening, but it was like none of it could come close to penetrating. There was this silence in me that was like a silence of the cycles of the breath and the heartbeat, this place of stillness in me. Wow. And I can see that that memory really still holds a lot for you. Thanks for sharing that. Those are both awe-inspiring stories, and awe is something that I want to come back to um, and spend a little time on because I also really enjoyed that part of the book. Before we go there, many of our previous guests on the show have highlighted how listening is not a passive thing. It's, it's a practice that requires intention. Would you say the same is true for silence? We talk with a, a friend and mythologist host of a, an excellent podcast called The Emerald, a guy named Josh Shry, who said to us that the silence of focused attention is both alert and relaxed at the same time. Yeah. And this is something we explore in a lot of different contexts. We look at how within Hindu traditions, for example, the, the wise people of antiquity, the rishis who received the sacred teachings received them through hearing. And that practice of hearing required that they live an ethical life, that they eat a certain diet, that they live according to a certain set of moral precepts. Because if they were lying and hurting people a bunch, then it would be really noisy inside the consciousness. Mm. So this, this mythologist I mentioned, Joshua, I mentioned, it's like the work of turning oneself into a tuning fork. How can you work with all the different elements of your life, your ethics, your personal practice, your character, and your moment-to-moment -moment practice, being in the moment, being with the breath? How can you work with all of this in such a way that you can be a finer instrument of perception so that you can really listen deeply? Beautifully said. It brings me to the thinking about when you're talking about Florence Nightingale in, in the book, and there's a quote, you know, noise that creates an expectation in the mind. It's something that really stuck with me as an idea 
And, 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 you know, as we're kind of divorcing these ideas that silence and quiet have to be the same thing. Well, one of the other things you mentioned is that there was a participant in a stress reducing study who, you know, was found his greatest quiet when he was using a roaring chainsaw to carve wooden sculptures. I want to talk a little bit about the real world impact of noise. And in the book, you say that globally, the World Health Organization now ranks noise pollution as second only to air pollution in terms of costs to human well-being. Mm-hmm. And of course, this affects different people you know, disproportionately. I'm, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit so that we really start to grasp more of the direct real world impact that people are experiencing because of noise pollution. Yeah, I decided to take a look at noise look first off defining it as unwanted distraction, right? This is what makes noise noise. We don't take that word, the use of that word lightly. Unwanted distraction, which we borrow also from Adam Ghazali and Lauren Rosen to um, a neuroscientist and a psychologist duo that also look at noise as goal interference. So it's getting Mm. in the way of what we intend and and really like goal, not just like getting things done on our to-do list or building our resume, but really our heart's desire, what we intend to do and put our attention to that kind of goal interference. So it's deeply troubling. So when we look at noise, we're looking at three levels. We're looking at auditory noise measured most commonly in decibels, which is exponentially on the rise. So we look at a proxy indicator, sirens, emergency sirens, and their volume have gone up six times, there's six times louder to pierce through the noise of the surrounding environments in the last hundred years. And it's up in that 120, very, very damaging to the, as many of your listeners have heard um, yes. as they pass by, you know, so that is in order to pierce through the noise of our environment. And that tells us a lot about how loud it's become. Then we look at informational noise, the mass proliferation of information grabbing for our attention through our screens and all kinds of things, but also just that is readily available. So our attentional networks can process no more information than it could could ever, you know, it's Mm -hmm. very limited. And yet we're getting more and more grabbing for our attention. And that is creating, and that's sort of what you were speaking to with Florence Nightingale when she talks about expectations, you know, of the mind that it's starting to pull our, our attentions to the internal domain in our world, our in, internal soundscape, uh, worry, rumination, all this anxiety and concern that is also going through the roof. And Ethan Cross, a professor at a University of Michigan estimates we have something like 320 State of the Union addresses running through our minds every day. That was a mind-blowing thing to yeah, read. Yeah, absolutely mind-blowing. So yeah, our minds are blown. Our minds are blown. Our attentional capacities are blown. Our ears and nervous system and all that is, you know, physiology is blown. And there's an interplay. Noise begets noise. So we, you know, all of these noises are rising. So it's a deeply troubling time. It's truly louder than ever, even though humanity has complained about noise forever. <laughs> I would love to move now to awe, A-W-E. And this is a part of the book that was very unexpected for me, but resonated very deeply. And actually in my notes, I just put in capital letters, spend some time here. Could you talk us through this concept? There are a couple different aspects of it, but if you could talk us through this concept and, and why it's so significant in this conversation. 
I can start us off about why this, why awe is so significant in our conversation. I, when we were doing this exploration of internal silence, one thing we did is we came across a uh, professor of biobehavioral health and medicine, Joshua Smythe, who pointed us towards this idea that quiet is what people think quiet is. And that really opened things up for us. Like, oh, quiet is like you said, the chainsaw carver who's finding quiet in that way, well, that pointed us towards flow states, flow states, which are incredibly accessible and actually universally recognized as a, as a shared experience, not just for the affluent, not just for industrialized countries, but it's a really accessible form of internal quiet. We make the argument of that. And, and yet these neuroscientists and psychologists are linking different mental states like flow states and moments of awe and mystical experiences as, as being somehow shared in what is happening inside the brain. So that's just why it felt important is like, actually, wow, there's this whole umbrella of experiences that have a shared quality. Moments of awe in particular are fascinating because they give us this sense of smallness and largeness at the same time. We get mm. smaller and larger as we take in the the wonders of the Grand Canyon, or we finally understand some aspect of string theory or something like this, or we take in the, you know, the stars the, under the vault of heaven, you know, we take that in. So these moments of awe have these unique qualities, making us both smaller and larger at the same time, as do these other qualities flow and Yeah. I think one part of it too, Tim, I love this question about awe. And one thing it's bringing up in me is that there's a kind of silence that is censorship, that is oppression, even silence as violence. And awe is a kind of silence that's the antithesis of that. In this book, we write about the kind of silence that we seek, not that silence of oppression, that silence of oppression that's usually born of noisy thoughts in the consciousness, of noise in our society of distraction, yes. of the inability to really listen, you know, as is the theme of your podcast. We talked with a Sufi teacher and very venerable spiritual student of many, many decades, Pir Shabda Khan, who told us that silence is not silent at all. It's teeming with life and joy and ecstasy, but it's quiet of thoughts of the self. Yes. It's quiet of foolishness. <laughs> gave us this coyote smile. And he said, you know, and as he said that, we realized that, you know, all that noise we were talking about with the World Health Organization, you know, second to air pollution, all of that is real. And of course, we do a deep dive into the serious implications of that. But in terms of the, the kind of noise that is most threatening to our well-being and most threatening to are thriving or even surviving as humanity right now. It's this noisy thought of the self that Pir Shabda Khan is talking about. It's this inability to listen to nature. It's this barrier to listening to another person deeply. And a moment of awe is a moment of not just managing that, but almost thoroughly transcending that. It's what's often called these days, a self-transcendent experience. So there may not be auditory quiet around, but there's a deep quiet within the self. I'm really inspired to think about 
what that more of that could create in our world. Um, and, you know, when you talk about this self-transcendence, but having a better sense of scale and how you fit or how, how, how grand something is compared to you or this sense of you are part of something greater than yourself. It's yeah. something really easy to lose as people. But I think it's really essential to what you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the why of the, the book and the work that you're doing. I, I think our species is under existential threat. And until we start listening and practicing some of these things, we don't make progress mm -hmm. in really any area. I want to jump back to this idea of flow a little bit, because I think people, I, I certainly related to it as a, as a musician and a performer, mm -hmm. you know, flow this magical place where, as, as you put it, we stop talking to ourselves about ourselves. And um, you have a conversation with the famous opera singer, Joyce DiDonato in the book. And it's recounting a performance that Justin attended in Washington, DC, and then her talking about her experience. And it's really fascinating how she talks about quieting the inner mind so that she becomes a conduit for the music and for communicating to the audience and to creating something where they have that communal experience, perhaps a catharsis, something that they find in themselves and the music in the people with whom they are experiencing it. And I have to be honest, I, I, I find this feel, this concept of flow really elusive mm -hmm. uh, to, to get into. I find it easier to do on the back of a motorcycle, that, which is actually one of the places where I, I don't, I don't write anymore. Um, I, I gave that up when I started a family. But it was that that idea of something that you talk about this a little bit in the book, right? Be between boredom and I don't remember the other the, the polarity of that mastery. Um, there's sort of this this like you're challenged to a certain degree, and you have a level of mastery. So yes, that's the sweet spot. That's yes, exactly. And and that I always felt that writing because you know you you have to be intensely focused or something bad will happen. But when you do that, you can get into this place where it's just everything else goes away. As a performer, there are a lot more variables, I feel like, when I'm conducting a performance. And I find that zone more elusive in that mm -hmm. format. I wonder if you could both share some ideas about how to, how to help people get there, like simple strategies for this idea that you talk about a mute button or dialing down the noise so that you can get into this state of flow. One thing you raised, Tim, is that sometimes these states of flow become, are more familiar and more accessible to us at different phases in our lives. You know, mm. I, I also made my husband give up motorcycles, so <laughs> I, I get that. And now he finds it, you know, more cycling or something. So it might be finding, you know, about finding that, that right path. And it's interesting that you bring up the variables as a musician. Maybe there's a bit too many to find that sweet spot as easily. And that does connect with some of the things we heard from Matt Heafy, you know, who is a front man, a heavy metal front man. He, he did talk about the, how ecstatic it was to feel that sense of flow when he's in front of a crowd of tens of thousands as the front man. That really wasn't his primary way of finding flow. That was more through jujitsu and martial arts and something more more everyday and more accessible, maybe perhaps as you suggest with a few fewer variables. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> adding to that like stressor, right? <laughs> but what's happening in there is you're, there's enough focus needed of that person in flow state that the um, self-reflective thought, there's no room for that story, that talking, you know, the self-talk, the, those noisy thoughts of me that you were pointing to. So it is about finding sort of that, that perfect sweet spot and something that you can do over and over again. I personally do that in dance, which I do mm-hmm. at the exact same time every day with a lot of the sim- similar music or different tracks that we do. So there's a lot of variables that don't change is what I'm trying to say here. And so there's a way in which I can really hone into like when I'm in flow and then a, a thought creeps into my prefrontal cortex and needs executive mm-hmm. function. And then, Ooh, I'm out. So I've been in a study of it, very close study. So I think there's something to be said about just finding a place where you can have a lot of those variables fixed and you're using your skills and you get to experiment and feel into that. That's just one suggestion. The, the example of jujitsu, a friend who I was interviewing about this was describing how in jujitsu on the mat, he's in a state where if he ventures in his mind toward past or future, he gets whooped. He said, hmm. he has to be in the present. So that's one of these common denominators to a lot of flow states like you were talking about, Tim, like being on the motorcycle or like Lee teaching dance. It's like if her mind starts wandering, she's going to throw all the students in her class off. Certainly you can't let the mind wander into all these forms of noise on a motorcycle. We look at this in different ways though, because we can't always be in a state like riding a motorcycle or dance or jujitsu. We have to be in our everyday life. And then we have to get a little bit more creative You know, we talk a lot about the practice of doing one thing. We go through the practice of someone's beautiful ritual of making coffee Mm. on a not fancy standard old coffee machine every morning, not with particularly fancy coffee, but getting into the sensory experience of the aroma of the beans as she grinds them, listening to the drip, drip sound of the water, being immersed in the moment in this way. And we talk in the book with a guy named Cyrus Habib, shows up early on in the book, who the son of Iranian immigrants went blind when he was eight years old, learned Braille, became a Rhodes Scholar, went to Yale Law School, became Lieutenant Governor of Washington State when he was about 35 years old. And he decided to shock everyone and leave politics, right when everyone thought he was going to run for governor or something like that and take a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a novice Jesuit priest. And this guy goes from this pinnacle of politics, super busy, noise-filled, immersive life, to sitting in silence, studying the spiritual practices of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And we asked him, like, how was that transition for you, man? Like, what was that like when you went from, like, one extreme to the other? And he said, you know, it was like this total elimination diet with respect to auditory and informational noise. It was like suddenly it all just disappeared. And yet he was dealing with these heaping, hearty servings of internal noise. He couldn't quiet his mind. And it was like constant thoughts to him of what do people think of me? They must think I'm totally nuts right now. Mm -hmm. So to get to this question of the flow state, he describes how that which was keeping him from his flow 
in the broad sense, not just in the sense of, you know, peak performance kind of flow state, but being in a kind of state of flow in his life. Mm -hmm. For him, what was keeping him from that was a state, a norm, a practice, a habit of performing to other people's expectations. Mm. And when he could ask himself the question, well, what do I really want? What is my heart telling me? What is really in line with my values? That would bring him to this place where all of a sudden he would realize, you know, just like you were saying, I was really struck by what you were saying before, Tim, that like, maybe we already have everything we need. Like maybe that. He tuned into that abundance that was present in the moment and in the silence. And in this, he finds his flow. That brings up so many things, this, you know, idea of self-transcendence, but Justin, you really went to kind of hinting in a different area where this really tests our commitments. I know sometimes what can take me out of flow is when I start, start asking that question, what are people thinking about this or me right now? <laughs> and now that is very quickly puts you back in that, you know, monkey brain kind of place. And I don't think I ever realized how much we all live there most mm -hmm. of the time and, and how to, you know, tie back to something you said earlier about, you know, what is noise and part of your definition being something that prevents you from living your life, how you're committed to living it. Part three of the, of the book starts with what you refer to as a thought or feeling experiment. I'm wondering if one of you would lead us through that right now. So beginning of chapter seven. Take a moment to join us in a thought experiment, or really more of a feeling experiment. Imagine you just committed to spending the next five years of your life in total silence. There's no need to take care of any logistics, no concern about how you're going to earn a living or provide for loved ones. All the practical arrangements have been made. What's your first thought? When you imagine this is actually happening, what feelings arise? How does your body respond? Is there a foreboding of loneliness? Is there a feeling of relief? Or do you experience something else entirely? With nothing to say, how do you imagine your inner landscape would shift? With no words, where might your mind gravitate? As you imagine yourself actually venturing out into this sea of silence, there's one more question we want you to consider, even though, at least at some level, we're pretty sure that we know the answer. Is it scary? Well, first of all, you have the greatest voice and... <laughs> I wish you could read to read to me all the time. That was wonderful because it really brings it home and, and makes it really, really personal. And I will admit that when I read that part and I, and I 
agreed to do that experiment along with you that anxiety was the first thing I felt mm. like that kind of feel like, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't know how this is going to go and all of these things. But then I thought, boy, what if we all just did that meditation every morning? Mm. What kind of space could that provide? Not only in silence in our, in our minds and in our inner beings, but space for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, this podcast exists because I'm committed to creating a global conversation around listening. And I related to your book really strongly because I share the, the concerns about our world that you have expressed and what you talked about in, in speaking of, about the why of the book and the why now of the book. Justin, you had an experience leading meditation on Capitol Hill. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the shift was that you observed in leading that process, that practice in what must be literally and cognitively one of the noisiest places on earth. It really is kind of the antithesis of that five years of silence that we just talked about. You know, in those five (laughs) years of silence, that little thought experiment or feeling experiment was inspired by Pythagoras, the ancient Greek polymath philosopher who innovated in so many different traditions, you know, of esoteric study and also physical sciences. Mm -hmm. And he required his inner circle of students to spend five years in silence before they'd study with him. Five years without speaking. And in Capitol Hill, like the idea of that isn't just outlandish. It's antithetical to everything that everyone is there to do. (laughs) You know, you're there to win the argument. You're there to win Twitter. You're there to win the cable news cycle. You're there to fill the space. So I had a a friendship with uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, a Democrat from Ohio. He's someone we interview in the book, someone we count as a a friend. And he launched a, a mindfulness program on Capitol Hill. He uh, had some programming for members and and, um, mostly congressional staff. You had policymakers from both sides of the aisle there. And I was for many years a uh, policy advisor, legislative director to three members of Congress. And during my time there, I I led some meditation sessions. We talk about in the book how in the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the delegates actually had a giant earthen barrier erected outside the meeting hall so that they could have pristine, quiet attention for doing the difficult work. And in Capitol Hill these days, it's like cable news blasting in every office, you know, open office, nonstop conversation. It's the opposite of that. So these moments on Capitol Hill where we would meditate for a half hour up to an hour sometimes, it was like at the beginning of the meditation, there'd be some discussion, there'd be some some light instruction I would offer. And you would feel once everyone got quiet, you would feel the thickness in the air of all the worry and all the what if and all the minds racing. It's a really mysterious thing. Like you don't have to believe in the occult to recognize that you could be in a silent room with a bunch of people. And when their minds are racing, you feel it. The quality of silence is different. 
you sure, probably sure. know this from conducting, from you know being in spaces of attention in the arts. Mm-hmm. And over time, you know, it was about a twenty-minute meditation usually, just the simplicity of being in the silence, maybe following the breath a little bit, maybe watching the thoughts a little bit. I would notice how the quality of the silence would shift. And sometimes in the opening, I'd be like, oh my God, what are we doing? (laughs) Because you'd feel people's heart rates, Mm -hmm. feel the noisiness of the minds. And then I remember one occasion in particular, I remember my wife came, she was uh, working across town and it was a nice moment to share together. It was like, I just felt elated as the session finished because it was like all of that internal noise that was somehow projected into the space, it was, it was substantially diminished. And there was a feeling of a lot more clarity and also a feeling of a lot more camaraderie in the room. Democrats and Republicans and you know, nonpartisan people together. It was imprinted on me what you mentioned in the book at the end of recounting that experience that we can be quiet together. Mm-hmm. And that's a very powerful idea for me, because in 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 looking for common ground with people with whom we may vociferously disagree, being quiet together is a great starting point that, ev- that everyone can do, and it's free to all. In wrapping up these conversations, I've been asking each guest what would the world look like with more listening? Mm. And today I want to change it up a little bit and ask each of you and Lee, maybe you'll start. What would the world look like with more silence? If I may, may I twist your question? A Absolutely. Tiny bit? I, 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 I have no ego about it? the question. Sure. I would love, I, yeah, I would love that. I mean, there's, it, there's yeah. synonymous things here. Totally. Yeah. And we actually look, pretty deeply, as you know, at what it would mean to listen to silence Mm -hmm. in particular, to listen to each other. Yes. We're all for that to the natural world, all these things. Yes. Listening, we're all for it, but to listen to silence, it it turns out is also a very powerful experience. Even a moment of silence to listen to can be transformative. So we look to the work of Ermka Christie, who did a study on on mice listening to silence and Mm -hmm. the type of stress that it created in those mice was was a positive type of stress called eustress, where they're actually growing to listen into the silence. And we take that, we extrapolate on what what is possible for us to also listen into silence, as is is the tradition of Nada Yoga. We listen to the sound of silence what is possible there. Personally, I've had that experience. It's what Justin was pointing to when he became elated after 20 minutes, where he realized, oh, this is so much more than me efforting. This is so much more than what I think is available to me. There's actually, you know, life or an, an instruction, intelligence coming through, call it what you will, but there's so much to glean from listening to silence, just as a starting point. What would you add, Justin? I love the question and I'm struck how a a world with more silence, silence in this sense of the silence that we seek Mm -hmm. is a world of more listening. 
And it reminds me again of what you said at the beginning about maybe we already have everything we need. A world of this kind of healing silence for me, a world where we can appreciate the silence of nature, appreciate the silence of what's left unsaid, is a world where we can have more, more gratitude. And one thing that comes up for me a lot, and this is really kind of one thing we haven't talked about so much in this interview yet is, is the, the systemic element of this, that we're not telling people, hey, you're too noisy. It's not about that. You know, you're, you're, it's not our fault that we're living with so much noise. Our systems are oriented to make as much noise as possible. Even how we measure gross domestic product in our economy is about yeah. generating as much sound and stuff as possible. Mm. So what comes to me with this question of, you know, what would emerge if there were more of this healing silence in our world and more appreciation of the silence? What comes up for me is that in our society today, we often mistake the feeling of stress for aliveness, negative stress, you know, not the type Lee was talking about with that study, but stress, stress, the Mm -hmm. kind that wears down on us we often mistake that for aliveness. So if we can appreciate silence more, I think we can have a reimagining of what it means to be alive, not just as the constant dopamine hit, not just as the stress and intensity of conflict and drama and disagreement, like we see as the basis of our politics and the basis of our television and the basis of life on Twitter and on and on and on. But that we can accept that there is a higher form of thriving that's possible. Mm. Aristotle talked about eudaimonia as a vision of happiness, of thriving, that's grounded in virtue, that's grounded in truth. So it's like, how can we, how can we, gravitate towards this instead. I love this also just adding that layer of not just listening to silence alone, which Mm -hmm. is incredible, but also thinking about sharing in that listening to share that silence, to share in that listening. And we have noticed that, that silence that is shared is magnified. I guess we could extrapolate that a listening that is shared of silence is also magnified. So inviting people into that. Wow. You just blew up a paradigm for me. I I not considered that before. If I think about it, I think, and this comes up in various ways throughout the book, but the idea of a communal experience, right? Where, Where people are able to experience something in the same time and space, and they may have their own mental or emotional journey about it. But the fact that it's happening in community is significant. I, I think for me, that's what makes live performances special, right? Mm. I always think of it as the creation of miracles because we're creating moments that have never existed before and will never exist again because it involves so many people to their deepest core level that we could stop and play a phrase over again and it would be entirely different. So I thank you for how you just connected that to silence. Amazing. Thank you. A parting shot for both of you. If you could broadcast a simple message that would be translated into every language and available to all people, what might it be? To simply appreciate 
silence. I could definitely piggyback on that, but since we just uncovered it, how about silence is magnified when it's shared? It's palpable. And I do believe it can change the world. Thank you for this beautiful conversation. Is there anything else that either of you would like to communicate to complete this time together? This has been such a joy, Tim. Thank yeah. you. Likewise. Thank you so much. I, I'm just, I'm thrilled to have the chance to connect with you both. And thank you for the book. I want to encourage everybody to go and contact your local bookseller and, and buy Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise by Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. It's a terrific read and one that gives you a lot of actionable takeaways that will make your life better. You can also find out more about our guests at leemars.com or justinzorn.com. And you can find our show notes and other links at listeningonpurpose.com. Lee, Justin, I'm really grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks for your work in the world. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you are enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and are finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and a review. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com to sign up for an email list that includes special episode highlights, show notes, and more information about our guests. To find out more about me, please visit timothymyers.com or find me on Facebook at Timothy Myers Conductor or Instagram at Mo T. Myers. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter for EQV Media and yours truly for Extra Musical. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.